This is the Cover 2 Podcast with Don Banks and Chris Price. Brady on the deep drop, stands in, fires down the middle for Gronkowski, makes the grab at the 45, spinning away from defenders. He's gone to the 20, to the 10, to the 5, to the end zone. The Cover 2 Podcast on Patriots.com. The play fake and the throw to the end zone for Antonio Brown, touchdown Don Banks and Chris Price provide blanket coverage of all things NFL on the Cover 2 Podcast. Eight different receivers have caught a pass from Matt Ryan today. He's looking to throw again. Wide open, Julio Jones has it, and in the end zone, touchdown Falcons. Nobody covers the NFL like the guys from Cover 2. Now, here's Don Banks and Chris Price. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Cover 2 with Banks and Price. I'm Don Banks and I'm joined once again by Chris Price. I'm excited to be in the studio and out of the way of this horrible weather. This is the year without summer in New England. <laughs> I've decided it. You realize it's going to be cold again in four months? Mm-hmm. Like in four months we'll already be like bracing for the winter again we just we we had we had about 30 seconds worth of summer and it's just straight to fall chris you know it's been two weeks now and you haven't even noticed uh my chris price starter goatee it's that I've coming in on. excellently i'll say that it and is it's coming in excellent it's got a little too much uh a little salt and pepper well a little too much salt yeah. and not pepper i noticed but yeah it's you know it's no chris price uh well-established goatee, but I, I, I'm going to grow mine like a, as this season goes on, as the, the podcast continues. I'm going to grow it like the guy in Kill Bill, where it kind of comes down, and I could just kind of just kind yeah, of do, I don't do, see do like a whole, Yeah, you yours look like the guy like you like manicure it every day. I just kind of let it go and see what happens. It's summer. It's time. It's the time of year you can play with your your look and your face and see what happens. Exactly. Anyway, exactly. we got a good show today. Um, we're going to have Mike McCarthy. I teased him a couple weeks ago, and then we, we did not land him. But Green Bay Packers head coach Mike McCarthy is going to join us in just a little bit. We're going to talk a little uh, free agency, Jeremy Macklin, and other topics around the NFL. And then we're going to have fun, and we're going to do a little, as a listener, uh, Mike Youngblood suggested, we're going to do a little top five coaching rankings. We're going to do a little Mount Rushmore plus one best of all time we're going to do the guys that we believe are the top five most overrated coaches and we're going to do the top five how did that guy ever get the job we're going to have fun with with that one but first i want to talk uh, a little bit more nfl news so let me get this straight chris hank williams jr has his nfl gig <laughs> back but colin kaepernick doesn't yeah if, if you were setting the odds as to who was going to be first you know who gets a job yeah, first who's going to get a job first connected to the nfl let's say because we don't know what hank has been doing you know away from the nfl but let's uh, hank williams or colin kaepernick or austin davis yeah austin davis. austin davis god bless him austin davis and tell people Good for austin davis. tell people who austin davis is they austin davis is the new pickup the new backup quarterback <laughs> for the seattle seahawks right as opposed to Colin. one kaepernick. of the backup yeah. quarterbacks. And, and now one of the interesting situations that's starting to develop is a little bit like all of the teams that are Steady teams that you know we we referenced steady she goes teams earlier all of those types of teams that would seem to be able to manage the baggage that would go along with a guy like Colin Kaepernick signing a guy like Colin Kaepernick all of them have their backup quarterback yeah. situation set right now so it's yeah. going to be interesting to see how all that continues to play it's out it's going to take an summer. injury isn't it, it to will. get to get it him will. a job uh, look I 
I don't know who was clamoring for Hank Williams Jr., but uh, he's back on Monday Night Football, and we'll see how that works out for ESPN. He'll say something eventually that will get him back in hot water. Um, the other topic, Rex and, Rex and Rob Ryan back in the news this week. A little video of them shoving uh, a little scuffle in Nashville. Uh, they're, I didn't they're know big Nashville fans. I didn't know they were they're, Predator they're fans. Big predator fans, but apparently they are. Uh, so, what's the other tag team combo in the NFL that could take them? I would go with the Bennett brothers. Yeah, Michael and Martellus. Yes, and, and I'm trying to think of another tag team combination that would create a a, a, a great matchup for for Rex and Rob Ryan. Who who would be? I. I I went with Mar- Martellus and Mike yeah, Bennett as well. It's, it's I can't. Tough. It's tough to go against Marty. And, Maybe and, the Harbaugh brothers. brothers. The Harbaugh brothers would be How about a lot that? Of fun. The Harbaugh brothers. I might pay for. I might pay to watch the Harbaugh brothers versus the Ryan brothers. Well, that would be at least a fair fight. They're roughly the same age. The, the NFL does such a great job parceling out, you know, events over the course of the off season, whether it's a schedule release or the, you know, the the the, the, the combine or the draft. They they need to carve out some time for a WWE style showdown. All right. We're going to stick with the Harbaugh Brothers theme and stick with the coaching theme. Mike McCarthy, Green Bay Packers head coach. Um, We've been trying to talk to him for a number of weeks, but here he is. Mike, good morning. Thank you for your time, and good to be with you. Good morning, Don. Thanks for having me on. I've been trying for a few weeks to run you down. You're a busy man. We have the absolute worst spring weather we've ever seen in New England. What's it like (laughs) in Green Bay right now, Mike? It's, it's gorgeous. Yep. It's, uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. So it, it was in the 80s over the weekend, and uh, we get to practice today. So looking forward to a, a beautiful day out there. First things first, we wanted to talk a little bit about Martellus Bennett. Obviously, kind of your centerpiece free agent addition, uh, coming off a Super Bowl season in New England, and really, I think one of the most thought-provoking and interesting NFL players in the league right now. Tell me what you know so far of the fit that Martellus Bennett has in Green Bay, and if he's already kind of added to the leadership quotient in your locker room. Well, he looks to be a good fit in the locker room. Uh, obviously, has a ton of personality, and you know, I'd like, I really like the way he's, you know, interacting and mixing uh, with with his teammates. Uh, you know, really, I think the, you, you would understand that that all veterans go through when you when you switch teams is. Is trying to get on the same page of you know, not only what we're doing, or it's it's more about what we're calling things, and just getting getting the wrinkles down and and trying to get those you know the relationship throws uh, as many reps as we can uh, between him and Aaron, and uh, just just getting in sync with with our offense. So um, I, I look at Marty and Lance really making that adjustment very you know it's going very well, and we're kind of fighting through our different installs to get the whole offense in by the middle you know by actually tomorrow we'll have everything in and so that's really the, his major focus is uh, just getting in tune with you know the the adjustment coming from uh, New England and but he looks the he's mixing very well in the locker room have you gotten a chance to know him much yet Mike and and talk to him he's he's got a unique perspective on almost everything definitely very creative um, you know Got a copy of his new you know, children's book, so um, my kids will enjoy that. But yeah, I, I mean, it's you, you you don't get you know past five minutes of the, your first conversation uh, with Marty and to realize what he's all about. Uh, he's a very you know, creative thinker, uh, out of the box thinker, and uh, you, I definitely appreciate his view of the world. 
Mike, Chris Price here. I, I want to ask you about some of the hybrid guys that you've brought in, re- really kind of leaned on a little bit over the last couple of years. When you are looking at a guy who can play multiple positions, how much do you have to balance the fact that, look, you can help us here, here, or here, as opposed to just the overall talent level and what he might bring to one position? Uh, I look at it from the second part of your your question. It's, it's really the overall talent. I, I, I just feel it's very important. To, to acquire as many good football players as you possibly can, and it may seem like just a, you know, just a general statement, but it's really our focus uh, from a personnel acquisition. Always has been. Uh, I mean, every coach ha- has a view or an idea of, of what you want your team to, l- to look like, uh, you know, whether it's you know measurables and and uh, personality and things like that, but. You know when you're when you're picking you know 25, 27, or you know hopefully 32nd in in the rounds uh, on a yearly basis, you you have to make sure you you're taking the best player, best person that you possibly can in your systems of offense, defense, and special teams. Need to make sure you can accommodate and feature those players. So um, I tend to not to get locked in um, on when there's certain positions, certain skill sets that, that you look for, but. When it's coming on overall, if a, if a guy can play multiple positions, I think that's a huge asset for your team. One of the things that Bill has said here in New England is is when he's t- taken guys like Julian Edelman or Matthew Slater, guys who might not necessarily kind of fit an easily definable role coming out of college, is that, look, we're, we know you are a football player. We're just going to find a spot for you and let things kind of work itself out. I, I agree. Do you, Mike, you got guys like, you know, Morgan Burnett, could play a little linebacker, Josh Jones, the rookie safety. Is it now, you believe, a, a really established trend in this league that you, you're going to have to have a certain amount of guys like that on your roster every year who can play a hybrid position? No doubt. Uh, it's, it's, cause at the end of the day, schematically, it's about matchups. Um, you look at the way the league has gone with the definition and the roles and uh, really the, the ability to attack the middle of the field is – is open more today than it's, it ever has been, in my opinion, in my time in this league. So, I mean, the safety position, the, the multiple you know, position player, uh, whether it's just you know, complete a safety, complete a nickel, complete a dime linebacker, and no doubt with the tight end positions. You know, I, I think New England you know, hit a home run uh, with, with Gronk and, and Marty as, as far as you know, having two you know, number one caliber tight ends uh, just the way you want to attack a defense. So, uh, the tight end position and then the safety position, because you know tight ends obviously play multiple positions. They can play in the backfield, they play on the line scrimmage, they play displaced. So when you have these multi-positional players and the ability to attack the middle of the field, uh, I, I think that's a primary focus in our in today's NFL. Mike, a couple weeks ago, the league you know tweaked a few things. I read where you said you didn't really have um, a preference on the on the shorter overtime, shortening it to ten minutes. Uh, but what about the TD celebration, loosening up of those rules? You are an all-business type of coach. Um, do you have any feel for whether that was a smart move, whether that was a player-friendly move, um, or do you feel as if, you know what, as long as it doesn't cross a line, you're fine with it? Where do you come down on the on the lax, the more lax celebration rules? Well, I, I feel it's the right move, uh, and I, I just think it's it's like anything – in our business, uh, you just have you have to have lines. You know, as long as it's not disrespectful, or you know, crosses a line of, um, you know, not to be tolerated, uh, I'm, I'm fine with it. So uh, I think the fact that 
you know, it'd be hypocritical for me to sit here and say that, uh, you know, you don't want to see another team uh, be able to celebrate a certain way when when we're allowed to have players jump you know, jump in the stands with the Lambo Leap. So uh, I, I think it's the right decision. And, but at the end of the day, it's it's about respect. You know, it's, as long as you don't get into dis- dis- disrespectful animations or actions, um, I'm fine with it. Mike, different teams are focused on different things at this time of year with the spring sessions, with the OTAs, obviously a younger team. Obviously, you know, I want to get a little more teaching in. You know, an older team has a different focus. Where are you with this team over the next handful of practices? What do you want to get done? What's the focus for you guys? Uh, really focusing on the young guys. Um, you know, our, our defense is way ahead of our offense right now, and it's, it's, that's normal. Um, it's a little... The defense is a little too far ahead of the offense right now, for my liking. Um, so we have two more install days. We take it takes eight, eight installations to get our offensive defense in. So we'll do seven today and eight tomorrow, and then, and then it's really the the focus Thursday, Friday, and the mini camps is all on review because we we have to get the younger players, the first year players. We've got to close the gap as much as, as we possibly can between them and the veterans, and, and that's always been my focus this time of year. Mike, when you do wrap up your work, uh, you always, in mid-June, have a, uh, a Mike and Jessica McCarthy, your wife, uh, American Family Children's Hospital golf tournament, and I believe it's still in Madison, correct? Madison, Wisconsin? Correct, yes. And I, about four or five years ago, you let me write a little bit about it. Uh, I know this tournament's been going on since 2010, June 11th and 12th. Tell me a little bit about the work you've done there and, and why it's still um, kind of the, one of the centerpieces of your off-season summer break. Well, my wife Jessica and I, we, we wanted to, to, to touch children. Uh, this will be our, our eighth year uh, with the event with American Family Children's Hospital in Madison, and, and it's something that we're, we're very proud of. Uh, we'll have a dinner Sunday the 10th, and I think we're going to be close to 800 people there at the Monona Terrace, and, and then uh, Monday we'll, we'll play some golf out there at Legend, Legends of Bergamont. Um, so it's it's uh, it's it's an, it's an event that's it's gone very well. I think we're pushing over the $2 million mark here this year, and uh, and when you see the hospital able to develop with the, you know, the, the additions of the 6th, 7th, and 8th floor and, and have an opportunity to, uh, to visit the children uh, two weeks ago, um, it's it's all part of giving back, and and it's it's a uh, privilege to be to be connected with this hospital. They like all children's hospitals; they do a phenomenal job. But it's it's an incredible culture and atmosphere, and it's it's something that Jessica and I take a, a lot of. We have a lot of pride and and very proud of what we've been able to establish with American Family Children's Hospital. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I, no, absolutely. I know how much it means to you. I know this time of year you're still in football mode, but I have to ask you, you're a Pittsburgh guy. Everybody knows it. Are you making any time for the Pens, the Penguins? Haven't missed a game. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to figure out how I can get back here for uh, game five on Thursday. I actually just... Um, Are you? We, yes, uh, I just flew. Actually, I was in Pittsburgh the, the past two weekends, and uh, we had we had an event for my brother Joe in his honor uh, yesterday, so uh, we were able to stay back and watch the game in Pittsburgh, and and then flew it late in last night. So yeah, we're we are penguin crazy now, and uh, it's what a great series. I get the feeling America's rooting for. I mean, outside of Pittsburgh, rooting for Nashville. It has that feel of like, oh, Pittsburgh wins mm-hmm. perennially, and now Nashville is the you the the on the way up chic team. You get that feeling, Mike. Oh, definitely. And, and hey, you have to be impressed with the way Nashville's played. I mean, it's uh, 
you know, four games that they've, they've, they've played extremely well and, and on some on some levels have, you know, outperformed us. But, hey, it's like I said, it's going to be a great series. Uh, getting it to 2-2 last night is, is definitely exciting, and I think game five is going to be awesome back here in Pittsburgh. Mike McCarthy, 12th year head coach of the Green Bay Packers, 124 career wins in 11 seasons, second only to New England. Eight straight playoff trips tied with New England. Um, a record, obviously, to be proud of. Mike, thanks so much for the time again. Great to hear from you. Great. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. People don't really, I think, outside of Green Bay, get the width and breadth of how much the Packers program has won. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just threw those numbers out there not to embarrass them, but it is remarkable. His record in 11 seasons, 124 wins, including the playoffs, um, that's, you know, a, a, an average only matched by New England. I crunched some numbers last night. If you start at 2006, which was the first year of the Mike McCarthy era in Green Bay, and go forward, New England, 138 and 38, uh, and then Green Bay is next in the in the regular season, 114-61-1. and one. Um, It's kind of in its own way, the NFC's... Um, you know, measuring stick. And you, you actually, excuse me, brought this up on the, you know, before we went on the air today. There is a perception of McCarthy and the Packers in Green Bay that they are kind of turning into football's version of the Atlanta Falcons, and that the Atlanta Braves, the Atlanta Braves. That's right. And they've had that great run of success for an extended period of time. Like you said, look, they they've made the playoffs every single year since two thousand nine. Uh, he's had double digit wins every single year since from two thousand nine, other than two thousand thirteen. They can't manage to get over that hump. I've always maintained, Chris, if if you're status quo in the league, if you're low, if you're in the middle, or you're high, no matter where you are, if it's status quo, it creates tension and frustration. And I think Mike McCarthy has run into some of that. The bar is set incredibly high in Green Bay. But that Super Bowl run as a sixth seed in 2010, they haven't been able to match that with Aaron Rodgers, and he gets a lot of heat um, in in his own market. A lot of teams would trade places in a heartbeat. A lot of fans would. But, you know, in Green Bay, eight straight playoff trips, uh, double-digit wins every year. The the other stat that you brought up, I love this too. How many playoff games have they lost over the last handful of years on the last last play of the game? I think it's five. Within the last minute. You can think back to the 2007 NFC Championship game. And far through the pick, you can think back to the, the two games in Arizona, exactly. The oh two nine games in Arizona, and two years ago, they're both in overtime. Obviously, the Seattle NFC title game, which was 20- still one of the most under one of the most unbelievable games that you'll ever I was see. At, I was at that game. It was just remarkable that obviously the onside kick that went against Green Bay, some things really crazy things really had to happen for Seattle to win that game. Um, they've had as many heartbreaking losses and sudden ends to their season as any team in the league. And then last year, let's not forget, they are 4-6 and six, heading into Thanksgiving week. 4-6. and six. They're dead in the water in a lot of people's eyes. And they not only win their next six in the regular season, they add two more in the playoffs, including an upset at number one seeded Dallas. And they go into Atlanta for the NFC title game as that proverbial, the team that nobody wants to play. And they're down 31 to nothing in the third quarter at Atlanta. So Green Bay, what a remarkable program McCarthy has put together. And yet it feels like, wow, there was more there that they didn't capitalize on. A 10-8 and record 
uh, for him in the playoffs, but eight, at least five or six of those losses, excruciating. The, the, from a New England perspective, two things about the Packers and McCarthy. I think every New England fan should send a card or a letter to Mike McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers because they knocked off the Giants last year, and that saved us all from Patriots-Giants Part 3. Uh, and then the third, the, the, the second thing is I have to believe – it's going to happen sometime in our lifetimes. I don't know if I'm just whistling past the graveyard here or hoping against hope, but the idea of an Aaron Rodgers-Tom Brady Super Bowl, the two best quarterbacks in the game today. We've gotten so close. We've gotten so close on a handful of occasions. It's got to happen sometime. It's got to happen sooner rather than later. As football fans, we deserve a matchup like that. So those are the two things. When you talk about the Packers and you kind of view things through a New England prism, those are the two things I'd like to chime in. Well, the Pats and the Packers in each of their respective conferences have set the bar. And um, you remember a couple years ago, I think they, they played that classic game in Green Bay at Lambeau. And I thought Belichick was really uh, very quotable saying how much respect he had for, for McCarthy and the Packers and, and, and what kind of program they've run. But it was the kind of game that made you feel you know feel good about being an NFL fan. It was the kind of game you just kind of hope and dream that – the two best go right at it and and give you you know three plus hours of not just quality but elite NFL football. Yeah, and they're not supposed to play. The Packers and the Patriots don't line up their schedules for another few years. So a regular season game, last one we saw, like you said, was the 2014, an absolute underrated classic. So it would be a while before they matched up in the regular season. But the idea of a Patriots-Packers Super Bowl, the idea of a Tom Brady-Aaron Rodgers Super Bowl – would be absolutely fantastic. A lot going on this week uh, for a week in uh, early June. Have to admit, the Jeremy Macklin cutting in Kansas City, I did mm-hmm. not see that coming. Obviously, Alex Smith, the Chiefs quarterback, didn't either. Guy that um, has been in Kansas City just two years. Obviously had a uh, injury plague season last year, 44 catches for 536 yards. But a 1,000-yard receiver as recently as 2015 now on the open market and visiting in the AFC East today, by the way, uh, the Buffalo Bills. What do you make of Macklin on the market at, um, I think he's still 29 years old? That's a, If he doesn't have to be the man, if he doesn't have to be the guy in the offense, if he doesn't have to be the absolute offensive centerpiece for a team, I think he could be a really good pickup for, for, for some roster. I, I just don't think that he can be – a true number one in the NFL these days. I, I, I don't think he has that capability, but I think he has the ability to be a really good complimentary piece. I think that, you know, and look, it's been discussed here. We're sitting here in Gillette Stadium. I think he would be the sort of guy who could be a nice pickup for a team that is not quite right there, but is competitive. Yeah. Is, is not a final piece of the puzzle, but the kind of guy who could bring something to the offense who would have to know his role, but again, at the same time, you know, I, I if, think he could be he could be a good pickup. He still it, could be a good pickup for someone. If it's not Buffalo, you just described the scenario you described as Baltimore to yeah. me. That, yeah. That's a team. Obviously, Dennis yeah. Pitta now re-injuring that hip, perhaps a career-ending ending dislocation of his hip. He's been hurt before, same injury. They need pass catcher Steve mm-hmm. Smith gone. Um, Baltimore makes all the sense in the world. And I, I think Philly, I, I, I don't see them on everyone's list, but Philly knows what they would have in Jeremy Macklin. And getting another receiver for Carson Wentz doesn't sound like a bad idea to I me. Think, I think Houston or Dallas is also a, a, a wild card possibility, um, as well as the Bills. Look, LaShawn McCoy really wants him in the absolute worst way by the sound of things. So, you know, it, you start running down a list of possibilities, Buffalo, Baltimore, Houston, 
Dallas. It, it is. It's going to be interesting to see how all that shakes out because very rarely at this time of year, guys like that pop up on the radar screen. All right, Chris, enough personnel talk. Let's get back to coaching. That's where we're focused on today in this podcast. When we thank Mike McCarthy for his time, Green Bay Packers, now 12th year NFL head coach. We're going to do a little exercise in uh, rankings because what would an offseason in the NFL be without rankings? Have to give a, a little bit of a shout out to one of our listeners. Mike Youngblood suggested we have a little fun ranking NFL head coaches in various categories. And we're going to do that. We're going to do, Chris and I both have compiled our our top five, we're going to call it our Mount Rushmore plus one list like of top all-time NFL head coaches. Uh, we're going to do our five most overrated, and then we're going to give you five names of what I like to call, how did they ever get the job? So are we starting with the best or are we starting with the most overrated? We're going to start with number five and work to the best. Okay. All right? Okay. So we're going to go backwards. Let's do it. And I think... The five best NFL head coaches, there's probably a lot of agreement on this list. Not complete. We did not t uh, check each other's notes, by the way. Um, but I think looking at the the usual suspects, so to speak, I think there's going to be a lot of agreement. I'm going to start off with number five, and I'm going to give you Don Shula. And I realize that may be low in some people's estimation, the all-time winningest NFL head coach. But I've got him in my number five slot in particular for his Super Bowl record, yeah. two and four. And um, that obviously includes the, uh, the Super Bowl three upset at the hands of Joe Namath. Number five, Don Shula, great, great longevity, unmatched longevity, um, but number five on my list. Well, see, I, I count that a little bit against him, the longevity, because he's a little bit in my eyes. A compiler? Yeah, a little bit of a compiler, a little bit, uh, you know, kind of a, a South Florida football version of Carl Yastrzemski in that the numbers were a little bit inflated by the fact he might have hung around a little bit too long at the very, very end. Uh, I have as my number five Chuck Knoll. And I think that when you start to compile a list, a top five, top ten list of the great coaches of all time, I think that remarkably for a guy with four Super Bowl rings, he gets the short end of the stick. He, he, he's a guy who I, I think has forgotten an awful lot um, because he is not in – you know, the, the, when when we think about the Mount Rushmore, we think about the you know the Lombardis, and we're going to get to these guys and Walsh and Belichick and all these guys. But I, I think that when you are putting together a top five, I put Noel there as opposed to Don Shula. I, I'm I'm going to stick with him. He won four with the Steelers. A lot of people say, well, you know, he could have just rolled the footballs out there, and anyone could have won. But he, I, I think that he's I think he's wildly underrated too. He didn't finish well. I'll give him. Exactly. Uh, uh, see, that's why. Uh, Chuck Knoll got marked down on my list. He did not finish well. He had that, obviously, that unbelievable, uh, what, eight-year run, maybe, from, well, 74 through 79 season, so even really shorter, winning four out of six Super Bowls. Um, the, you know, the other factor for Shula at number five, two losing seasons. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. This is a man who began his head coaching career uh, when John F. Kennedy was president, 1963 Colts, uh, and then coached all the way until, well, I want to say the 95 Dolphins were his last team. So pretty remarkable. All right, let's move on to number four. I went with Paul Brown. Now, it's hard 
to even think of the impact and how far it reaches. He was so innovative. There's so many things about NFL coaching that directly relate to Paul Brown. Um, obviously, late career, the expansion Cincinnati Bengals did not have. He had success, but he did not have great success. But the era of the Cleveland Browns, first in the um, AAFC, I believe I'm getting that mm-hmm. right, um, and, and then the NFL, totally a dominant team for such a long stretch. And I've got to have him in my Mount Rushmore plus one. I put him up there as well, although I, I, I will get to him momentarily. Tease that a little bit. Um, my number four is Vince Lombardi because he is Vince Lombardi. I think that's one of those things where, and correct me if I'm wrong here, someone walked into the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the, the discussion one time, and they were nominating Jerry Rice, and someone got up and said, well, he's Jerry Rice, and sat back down and said, well, okay, of course we're going to vote him in. I, Lombardi for me. The only question is where he was going to end up, and, and I think that on this list of top five or top four plus one or, 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 or Rushmore plus one, Lombardi feels about right at number four given the number of, of innovations that he came up with. I'm not going to argue with you on Paul Brown, and I have, I have my statement to make on Paul Brown a little bit later, but, but on my top five, I'm going Chuck Knoll number five, Vince Lombardi number four. Okay. I, I have Vince a little higher. Uh, the number four, just because uh, they did name the trophy after him. Yeah, he he kind of set, yeah. set the bar. Um, my number three is a guy that I think may get overlooked on the top five list because the length of his career wasn't great, and that's Bill Walsh. And he went 102-63-1 with the Niners, 10-4 and in the playoffs, three Super Bowl trophies, remember, Probably could have his team won a fourth the next year with George Seifert in 1989, but when you add in his impact popularizing the West Coast offense, um, he's in the Hall of Fame, and the fact that his coaching tree is really really broad. Uh, I, I believe that although his head coaching career was relatively short, uh, ten years. Um, his impact was was undeniable in NFL history, and I, I think he has to be on this list, and he's my number three. That's the one spot where we both agree. Okay. I think uh, I, I'm putting Walsh number three. When you look at, and this kind of goes back to, to Paul Brown a little bit as well, but when you look at not so much the wins and losses, yes, Walsh put up phenomenal numbers as a coach in a relatively short amount of time. It, it was the, the amount of innovation that he came up with, what he was able to do as a coach, his forward-thinking philosophies, like you said, the West Coast offense, a lot of those things came together perfectly for him at the perfect time. You look at his coaching career, uh, again, it was not the longest coaching career. You stack it up against some of the other guys on this list. As a matter of fact, 10 years, uh, it's, it's a relatively short time, but at the same time, you consider his impact on the game, you consider the fact that he was the architect of one of the great dynasties in NFL history, you have to have him on this list. Number three to me feels about right. I like quality over quantity in almost every case, yeah. um, and, and that's that's Bill Walsh. All right, my number two is Vince Lombardi. Um, again, not a long head coaching career. Nine seasons in Green Bay, one season in Washington. But the man won his league title five out of seven years with the Packers um, in, a, in, a, in a seven-year span, five championships, counting the first two Super Bowls, 105-35-6. Let that kind of sink in for his coaching career. 70 games, 
over 500, nine and one in the playoffs. Only playoff loss, 1960 NFL title game at Philadelphia to Chuck Bednarik and the Eagles. And then, of course, in Canton in 1971. Uh, to me, you know, I realize that he wasn't competing against 31 other NFL teams when he was on top of his game, but he dominated his era. Um, to this day, I think the first coach you think of in NFL history is Vince Lombardi. Yeah, yeah. It, I like I said, I, I had him at number four. You could argue anywhere, really. Yeah, you could argue anywhere for it. Really put him anywhere in this top five. I'm going with Bill Belichick at number two. Okay, um, Bill's coaching career, at least around these parts, is, is is well documented, but the fact he's won five Super Bowls as a head coach, two more as a defensive coordinator, uh, he seems to me, in a lot of ways, the guy who picked up where Paul Brown left off when it comes to not only coaching impact, uh, wins and losses, innovation, the overall magnitude of what he's been able to do uh, since he arrived in the NFL uh, and particularly here, knowing look, we can make the argument, and the argument's it's 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 a long running one. Who who makes who here? Is it the quarterback right. making the coach, or is right. the coach making the quarterback? I tend to look at this as a as a Bart Starr Vince Lombardi kind of relationship, and that both of them separately were very very good, but when you put them together, you have a once in a generational sort of combination. So I, I'm putting Belichick number two again, five Super Bowl trophies as a head coach, two more as a defensive coordinator, an unprecedented run here over the last 15 plus years my favorite stat one of my favorite stats about this team since 2000 they have never played a regular season game where they've been out of the playoff picture the two times since 2001 they've been out of the playoff picture it's been after their regular season right. finale and, and so oh two and oh eight oh two and oh eight exactly a lot of that comes back to the obviously a lot of that comes back to the quarterback but also the majority of it, in my mind, comes back to the coach. That's why I have Belichick at number. Well, two. you haven't had, and I have, I have Bill at number one. Um, so no, no big surprise there. Look, I wouldn't have said this three years ago before the two late career Super. Well, we don't even know if it's late career, but we presume late career Super Bowl titles. But to me, that now gives his career a a unique uh, vantage point because it, the three titles. Early on, clumped together. Now the two titles in the last three seasons. The the heft of, of his statistical accomplishment is unprecedented. And I also just think it's a degree of difficulty in the salary cap era to do what he's done with the franchise. Yes, he has a great quarterback. I understand that. Every one of these guys had great quarterbacking at some point that helped them make our list. And that just that goes hand in hand. But to put this program together when the forces at, at work in the NFL is to create something in the middle, something close to parity, and to stay so far ahead of the pack, not just ahead, but so far ahead of the pack, is really, um, I think, a singular accomplishment. So uh, Mr. Bill is number one on my list. I'm going with Paul Brown as number one. and We've heard Bill talk about this on a number of occasions. Paul Brown was the guy who in many ways help modernize professional football yep. when it comes to innovation and look how they could, practice exactly. how they play call yeah play we, calls we can argue wins and losses and we can argue titles and, and all of that and go back and forth and quite frankly when you look at the, the careers 
you know, Paul Brown with with the Browns in in the fifties and forties, fifties and sixties, and the Bengals six. It's almost apples and oranges at this point. But but the number of innovations that Paul Brown introduced, the fact that he continued to win, the fact that he was, you know, he was one of the first guys, one of the first coaches to use you know game film to scout opponents. He hired a full time staff of assistants. You know, he he was largely credited with breaking the color barrier in the NFL. This right. this is a guy who is an absolute titan when it comes to his place in NFL history. And so for all of that, I'm going to give him the number one spot. If you're putting this list together, you know, it's Brown in my mind, Paul Brown one, and then Belichick one A. So I have running down my list of best coaches, Paul Brown, uh, Bill Belichick, Bill Walsh, Vince Lombardi, and Chuck Knoll. I'll give Paul Brown extra credit for being the only coach with a team named after him as well. So not bad. Can you imagine that today? Seriously, for, for, for a sec, think about that today. The New England Belichicks? The New England Belichicks. It doesn't the roll off the Cincinnati Lewises. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It doesn't have the same sort of flair as the, the Cleveland Browns. Well, thank goodness we didn't have the Detroit Morning Wigs or something like, like Going that. Going back to the 40s with Paul. There you go. Thank you, Kevin. All right, let's go on quickly to the most overrated. Now, this, you know, we can have some fun with this, and but we're not trying to demean these guys as much as we just don't believe their record truly lives up to the hype that um, their reputation eventually acquired. I will go first. My number five, Bears fans, forgive me, Mike Ditka. Now, Mike Ditka, um, we can talk all day. Cut that out right now. If Buddy Ryan was really the most responsible for the legendary uh, 85 Bears and that era of success in Chicago. But then I can't get out of my head. Him just absolutely mailing it in for three years in New Orleans, uh, 97, I want to say 97 through 99, um, just picking up a check and doing absolutely nothing. And I understand there's been a lot of Saints coaches. Hank Stram comes to mind. There's a lot of good coaches went to New Orleans, and suddenly they weren't good coaches anymore. Mike Ditka, to me, uh, it was a relatively brief shining moment that he was on top, and a lot of people still believe that was a defensive-led team, thanks to Buddy Ryan. He was the perfect coach for the perfect team at the perfect time for about two-plus years in Chicago. That was the guy. He, he, he was representative of Chicago Bear culture and you know the city of broad shoulders and the monsters in the midway and kind of an over-the-top coach for an over-the-top team. But Play, I, playoff not, record 6-6. Six and six. Exactly. That's a team that and we could say this about a lot of teams and maybe some of the coaches on this list. He, they should have won more. He should have won more. I think some of it speaks to Buddy Ryan's influence on that team. I'm going number five, Marvin Lewis. Um, it, okay. it seems like a bit of a layup. You know, you, you start to think about a list like this, and you, you, you look at what Marvin has been able to accomplish over the body of work you know, since he came into the league. For a guy to... Came into the Bengals in 03. In 03, exactly. Second only to Belichick when it comes to overall seniority Longevity. with a single team. For a guy to have his team in place and for a guy to have all of these pieces in place... And to not win in the playoffs, I think, is absolutely unforgivable. So, regular season Marvin Lewis, not bad. Postseason Marvin Lewis, wildly overrated, at least. I'm going to go number four, Rex Ryan. Now, again, that feels a little too current. Maybe we're giving too much bias to the recent. But remember. Eating a bunch of cheeseburgers. Rex Ryan really made his name um, in 09 and 10, getting the Jets to the AFC title game. They were 9-7, and seven, and Rex himself thought they were out of the playoffs. 
that first year in 09. He conceded after a loss to Atlanta that they no longer had a shot in the playoffs, was later informed that they were still alive for the playoffs. They went on to make it. They got hot. I'll give him credit. They got hot for two consecutive Januaries. Mm-hmm. He had his ground and pound, but they really, they let's be honest, they were a debacle in his last four seasons in New York. He did nothing but kind of further degrade his reputation. That's in, being a jackass. In Buffalo. <laughs> Thank you, Rex. You're making my point, not not yours. Um, I have to put Rex Ryan on this list because this is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately league, and Rex has done nothing for a long, long time. From a team-building perspective, those first two years were really good because they had a great locker room infrastructure in the fact that the, the, the other group – uh, you, you know, when when they got to that point, they kind of stripped away some of the great players and some of the really good players that helped create that foundation. I, I So I'm not going to put Rex on this list. I'm not really not so much his fault. I'm going to go with Norv Turner at number four. Norv Turner is a coordinator, really, really good. But whoever said he was rated? But, but Norv Turner, as a, as a head coach, eh, and maybe he go, maybe he deserves a spot in our other category here. How did he? Yeah. You know, how did he? But but uh, look, for, for what I've seen from Norv Turner as a head coach, I'm putting him in here. Great numbers as a coordinator. Look, Dallas, all that phenomenal over the – but as a, as, a, as a head coach, wildly overrated. Well, and I, I get that. You know, here's how I thought of Norv as a head coach. As a head coach, he made a heck of an offensive coordinator, as they say. But he's under 500 as a head coach. So I don't, I don't know that he was ever highly rated as a head coach. I'll tell you who I went with, and it's a little surprising to some people. Marty Schottenheimer is my next man on the list. And, again, maybe I'm over – weighing the uh, postseason, but Marty was a complete disaster in the postseason, and I mean a complete disaster. And, yes, he coached for four teams, and he got a lot of teams to the playoffs. 200 wins. 200 wins. Coach. But he never did anything in the postseason, let alone a Super Bowl. I think he maybe won AFC title game. Um, no, I'm sorry. He, he had Cleveland a couple, and, and he then he Cleveland Kansas a couple, City. and then he had San Diego. His last year as a head coach, that team went 14 and two. That was the Ladanian Tomlinson team. The Patriots went out there and, and, and beat him, Marty, in that divisional playoff. But Marty had something like eight one and done playoff trips. Yeah, that's not. And yeah. uh, again, I think he was a much much better regular season coach. Uh, but overall, a guy that has that kind of postseason record and then gets four jobs. To me, that that is how you define overrated. I'm going with Brian Billick at number three, and, and Brian Billick, a, a guy who is an offensive genius, uh, you know, with Minnesota and coming to, to to Baltimore and winning with the defense. That is, to me, the greatest example of a coach. Look, all you got to do is roll the footballs out there, just let him go. I think he he is a guy who, as a head coach, is wildly overrated, even though he won a Super Bowl even though he had some of the great defensive players of this or any other generation, quite frankly. I think when you look at his numbers overall, what he could have done as a head coach, kind of the Ditka argument a little bit. I think he should have won more, so I'm putting Billick here on my overrated list at number three. I don't have Brian on this list. I think I think Brian made the most of a, a pretty good situation in Baltimore that he that – he, that he uh, found himself in. Look, uh, back to Marty for a second. Five and thirteen in the playoffs. Five and thirteen. No. Uh, eight one and duns. So, six of them were on his home field. Uh, my number two. I think everybody has to have this guy on the list. Jeff Fisher, um, the master of the eight and eight season. Um, how he lasted so long is really uh, an indication of that he was in the Tennessee market and he was in the St. Louis market with two less than ultra-demanding fan bases and media contingents. But this is a guy that, obviously, the one Super Bowl trip with the 99 Titans 
to me, he lived off of that mm -hmm. for a very, very long time. Um, 08 was his last playoff trip. He was just, it, it was amazing how many years he could milk out of having a team that was decent, but rarely, rarely dominant. I think we have our top two are the same. We just flipped them. I'm putting Gruden at number two. I yeah. think the Chucky persona has been great, and I think it's done. He, he's gotten an awful long way with that, but I think when you look at what he's done and the numbers don't necessarily match up with a legend. Now, I know that a lot of that legend is augmented by the fact he's been on TV the last few years and kind of been able to build, up, build himself into this guy. Uh, I, I think that the coaching career doesn't necessarily hold up to the pedestal that we have collectively put him on. I agree. John Gruden's my number one. As a head coach, he was no John Madden. Uh, as a broadcaster, he was no John Madden either. Um, look, this is a guy who did take Tony Dungy's team to a Super Bowl, but let's be clear, it was Tony Dungy's team. He got the incredibly fortuitous break of coaching against his former team that he knew like a book, against his former coordinator, Bill Callahan. That was like the absolute layup of all layups for the Bucks, and they had a great defense and they and they swar swarmed the Raiders that Super Bowl. The Bucks went 45 and 51 and did not win another playoff game in Gruden's final 6 seasons after winning that first season Super Bowl. I think John Gruden's reputation is far far in ex excess of what his coaching uh talent actually delivered. So our top 5 are 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 Fairly close when you talk. Well, when you talk about the top two, anyway, I have Fisher at number one for all of the reasons that you laid out there. I think that you know he he dined out on that meal of of coming that close in you know the Super Bowl against the the Rams for an awful long time, and, and the the resume didn't necessarily match the performance, especially toward the end of his coaching career, at least the recent most recent run of his coaching career with the Rams. So I have Marvin Lewis. Norv Turner, Brian Billick, John Gruden, and Jeff Fisher. I went with in that order. My my top counting down my top five. I went with Ditka at five. I went with Rex Ryan at four. I went with Marty Schottenheimer at three. I went with Jeff Fisher at two and John Gruden Chucky at number one. Um, I think that's a that's a pretty solid list on both of our parts. I think there's a lot of meat on that bone still. This is the one we can have fun with, and we're going to do this quickly. How did they ever get the job in the first place? Five names. I'm going to throw you mine. We don't have to go back and forth here on this one, but here's here's a couple highlights. Marion Campbell. Now, Marion Campbell went 6-19 for the Falcons in 74 and 76, and somehow Atlanta said, you know what? We should have never let him go. Six and nineteen. We got to bring him back. They hired him again from eighty-seven to eighty-nine. He went eleven and thirty-two just to nail it down. Do that math. That's seventeen and fifty-one as a Atlanta Falcons head coach. That is amazing. All right, I'm wrong. Give me one so that I don't talk nonstop. Ray I Hanley. Ray Hanley. There, there were so many great assistants on that New York Giants coaching staff at that time. Put, him, went, put them in time way. perspective. Where this is this is the this is this is post Parcells, and you had a handful of guys on that staff, Belichick and Coughlin among them, who would at least go on to relatively successful coaching careers. And they picked the wrong guy. They picked Hanley, and the Giants, who were on a great run at that time, saw everything go into the dumper, and they had to be resuscitated shortly. Ninety one and ninety two yeah. were Ray Hanley's years, yeah. and and and. If ever 
you saw a coach with deer in the headlights look. And I think he went 14 and 18, but that's with a Super Bowl level team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Ray Hanley. Okay, I'll give you one. Les Steckel. That's still a name that rings in the history of NFL coaching as a complete um, uh, and utter failure. Les Steckel took over the Bud Grant coached Vikings. Bud Grant had been there obviously since from like 67 to 83. The 84 Vikings. Bud Grant, hand-chosen successor, Les Steckel. He was that military, no-nonsense, former, I want to say, Marine drill sergeant or something. He went 3-13 and in 84. You talk about losing his locker room. He lost his locker room dramatically. It was a veteran team. It was so bad that Bud Grant had to come out of retirement in 85 just to go 7-9 and and restore some sense of sanity. With the Minnesota Vikings. I kind of know how this guy got his job, but when I, I don't know how he kept his job. So does that make any sense at all? If, I know how he yes. got his job, but I know how, how Dennis Erickson. And okay. I've had guys who've played for Dennis Erickson tell me that Dennis Erickson didn't have a clue as to how to succeed in the National Football League. Not so much as a college coach. He had everything in place as a college coach. Of course, the guy who followed Jimmy Johnson at the University of Miami. But he gets to the NFL, and it's just... Someone go out there and make a play. There, there's no sense of drawing stuff up. There's no sense of structure. There's no sense of game plan. There's no sense of approach. It's just we're just going to roll it out there. We're just going to you know see what we can do and, and, and try and make a play. So Dennis Erickson, for me, is on not so much the how did he get the job list, but how did he keep which, his job Which list. job are we talking, the Seattle or That's San Francisco? Seattle. Seattle. Okay. Because yeah. uh, he, he went on to a couple – very dismal years in San Francisco. And then the San Francisco one, maybe you can encapsulate it. How did he keep his job? Yes, exactly. Okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to go into the Wayback Machine and give you a name. If you've ever seen this NFL Films clip, you'll know Bill Peterson, the 1972-73 Oilers, which was truly one of the worst football teams in NFL history. Bill Peterson went 1-18 and in his Oilers tenure. Uh, Sid Gilman, I believe, came out of retirement to replace him. Bill Peterson was a Florida State coach. You talk about college coaches coming into the league and being overmatched. That's been a storyline the last 20, 30 years. Well, it started maybe with Bill Peterson because 1-18 speaks volumes. There's a great NFL Films clip of him talking to his team. I think it's pregame, and he just sounds like the most overmatched, in-over-his-head, uh, rah-rah college coach you've ever heard. He talks about a bomb going off. We're going to be just like a bomb. We're going to keep building, building. It, the, the, the look in the uh, player's eyes said it all. Bill Peterson, how did he ever get the job? I'm going to go a little ways back. Not that far back, but I'm going to go a little ways back. Bruce Coslett. Ah. Uh, nine years, four with the Jets, five with the Bengals. He His, lasted nine years? He lasted nine years. Four, wow. four of them in New York, two eight and eight seasons. That was peak Bruce Coslett in, in New York. Uh, right out of the gate, 1996 with the Bengals, finished 7-2. and two. That was as good as it got for Bruce Coslett over the course of his coaching career, 47-77. and 77, No play, One playoff appearance, uh, and, that, and that was pretty much it. And he was fired after week four in 2000, never to be heard from again. All I remember about Bruce Coslett, he was a pretty steady smoker. There was like <laughs> shots of him on NFL film smoking. Look, I covered this next guy. Richard Williamson, one of the nicest men I have ever uh, gotten to know in the NFL, Tampa Bay Bucks head coach in 1991. They actually fired Ray Perkins in 1990, that first year I was on the Bucks beat, after 13 games. And Richard Williamson was the interim for three games. He went one and two and somehow still got the job. I think it was because Hugh Culverhouse knew he would come cheaply, did not want to pay off uh, Ray Perkins' staff and hire a big-name head coach. So Richard Williams was installed as the 
Bucks head coach. He had been the receivers coach. A absolutely overmatched uh, experience from start to finish. He went four and fifteen with the Bucks before he was one and done. A three and thirteen season in ninety one. Um, Richard was great, but I'll never forget some of his. Um, I guess the ways we knew he was a novice and was not going to make it, he sat down in the head coach's chair at his first press conference and said, looked at us, us reporters, and said, what's the procedure? He he did not know how a press conference went. We said, well, we ask you questions and you try to answer them or not. And that's it went from there. It was pretty funny. Richard Williamson, long-time, very successful receivers coach, spent like – 15 years in Carolina with the Panthers, but was as a head coach, he made a heck of a receivers coach. Around here, it's easy to remember this guy primarily for his role with the Jets in 1995 and 1996, but he had a pretty decent run with the Eagles before that. And, and it's it's fascinating to look at the coaching splits for Rich Kotite because in he Philadelphia... Had to make, he had to make one of our lists. Exactly. Either overrated or what, 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 however you want to break it down here. You're talking about a guy in Rich Kotite who the first two years in Philadelphia... Goes twenty-one and eleven, and goes to the playoffs. Looks like he has a Philadelphia team that is ready to break through. Randall Cunningham, exactly. Reggie White, so many, so many good young players that on was that Buddy roster. Buddy Ryan's team, exactly. Yeah, and he took over for Buddy Ryan, and then Eagles start to slide a little bit. Eight and eight the next year, seven and nine in nineteen ninety-four. He gets hired by the Jets, four and twenty, four and twenty-eight over his two years in New York. That's a guy. How did he keep his job? Rich Kotite had to be on the list. Four and twenty-eight. That says it all with the New York Jets. All right, that's it, right? That's good. That's, that's it. our list. That's all our right. list. That is a lot of fun if you start diving into the records. And there are other names. I wanted to put Lehman Bennett for Tampa Bay's four and twenty-eight. I wanted to go with Dave Shula, but I know how Dave Shula got his job. His last name was Shula, but. At Mike Youngblood, thank you. Uh, a great idea. We're going to have fun with other topics along those lines as well. But this is the coaching show, and we just dove into a whole mess of coaching best, coaching overrated uh, candidates, and guys where we have to stop and wonder how did they ever get the job. Great podcast. I enjoyed it. It's good stuff. Again, we fooled it for another week. We really did. Send us your ideas on Twitter. I'm at Don Banks. Give us your ideas for uh, uh, future shows. We like that type of I'm at C-Price NFL. A lot of good stuff this week. We're going to be looking forward to coming back at you next week with another great podcast, another great edition of The Cover 2. Take care, everyone. Thank you for downloading the Cover 2 podcast from Patriots.com. Second and goal to go from the two. Toss sweep right for James White. Cuts it under the right arm. Cuts it upfield. Driving forward. Diving to the goal line. A touchdown. And a title for the Patriots. I can't believe it. They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Log on to Patriots.com anytime for more news and more podcasts covering your favorite team and all things NFL.